Kia ora and welcome to this episode of The Stag Roar. This episode is brought to you by our mates at Modern Pirate, 100% carbon neutral. Modern Pirate makes an amazing range of men's grooming products and if you're one of our Aussie listeners then you've probably seen them in your quality barber shop. I've used the pomade in their matte clay paste to style what hair I have left and their charcoal soap is the business. You can get 10% off every order by simply entering the code STAGROAR at checkout that's lowercase S-T-A-G-R-O-A-R. Look good and support another quality Kiwi export that the Aussies are sure to claim as their own. Check them out at modernpirate.com.au. That code again is STAGROAR. Kia ora and welcome to episode 144 of the STAGROAR. This episode I'm joined by the absolute legend Adrian O'Brien. I don't know whether it's uh, the strength and conditioning, the way he looks at coaching, or the fact that he's Irish. Uh, this was bloody good crack to to use an Irish term. Adrian is just a champ, really. He describes so much in a diverse pool of knowledge, which then translates into exceptional communication of ideas and. I'm a bit jealous that I'm not one of his athletes, to be honest, and he wasn't a a coach in my development. Um, This is a thoroughly wide-ranging, thoroughly enjoyable conversation, and I hope you get a lot out of it. I know plenty of the regular listeners, which I'm in contact with, will love this. Um, And yeah, be sure to reach out to both Adrian and myself if you got something out of it. Without further ado, here's episode 144 with the legend Adrian O'Brien. And is it just, are you recording audio and um, are you co- recording the screen as well? Or what yeah. would you, you just... Yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll be putting what, um, a video up on YouTube, so it's good to see you down here, mate. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and where are you? Are you in your cupboard, is it? Yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a wardrobe. This is my new recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, very cool. Yeah. How about yourself? Where, where are you situated right now, man? Um, What's yeah, your just my office. Yeah, just my office. Yeah, yeah. So I just normally have the mic beside the, um, just beside me here, and it works fine. Beautiful. Um, yeah. How how important do you think in offices? I know my dad. He's he's a coach. He's a rowing coach, and he's they moved to, when they moved to Christchurch up from Invercargill. He's they sort of had a townhouse and. You know, he doesn't have an office. He wants a new house with an office because he used to have an office at home because he was a teacher. Um, how important is an office to you as a coach? It is quite important because you need your space. And um, unfortunately, the way strength and conditioning has gone now, you spend more time and as much time in front of a computer as you do on the field um, or on the court or in the gym. So it, it is quite important. You know, the tech side of things and the ability to track things it's 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 a very important skill to have so unfortunately like i've lots of diaries as well like i still use diaries to write stuff down on but um uh unfortunately you need your space and you need to be able to organize your space because if you don't have that you just become very disorganized and that's the that's possibly one of the worst pitfalls of coaching <laughs> mate um i've had the pleasure of listening to you speak now twice in two real movement intensives and i've thoroughly enjoyed them 
and um, listen to a couple of your podcasts. For those out there that have never heard, or they, if they listen to the podcast, they would have heard of the name Adrian O'Brien because Keegan brought it up. But um, who's Adrian O'Brien today? That's a good question. Um, so I always kind of attack this question from the inside out. So my very pure self, I'm healthy, happy, and strong. Okay. I live each day in each day in accordance of my core personal values of honesty, respect, gratitude, and growth from failure. My life is fulfilled when I'm looking forward and growing. I'm an inspiration for those who seek, and anyone else doesn't matter. Every moment of every day, my decisions are driven by my core personal values, and I will never settle for anything less than I can be. So that's me as my pure self. So I always start with that because I firmly believe that we are beyond our names or our nationalities or our job descriptions and that's the ultimate level of self-awareness in terms of your your true understanding and connection and awareness of yourself so then beyond that i'm a father and i'm a husband and which are my most important job titles if you want to call them job titles Um, i think that parenting and being a, a support for the people around you is fundamentally the most important job that you'll ever be given and it's a highly subjective job and there's no there's no technical framework that teaches you how to how to um how to parent or how to be a husband and it's an evolving process but it can teach you an awful lot about life and life can teach you an awful lot about that um then beyond that i'm a performance coach (laughs) which is possibly what most people would know me for so to give you the the I suppose the fast track, I, I'm going to lead strength and conditioning, even though I think the term strength and conditioning is quite a redundant term, but I, I work in elite strength and conditioning within GEA sports in Ireland. So if not quite sure how aware the listeners are of GEA, but they're Gaelic sports. So in Ireland, we have Gaelic sports that comprise of three sports. The two main ones are Gaelic football and Gaelic hurling. So Gaelic football is like a hybrid of soccer and Australian rules. That's possibly the best way to describe it. Um, hurling is a support of 15 aside where you have two sticks. Sorry, you have a stick and you're trying to strike a ball either into a goal or over the bar. So it's an extremely fast and skillful skill sport. So I work in elite Gaelic games and um, that is my day job. I also run a gym um, called OBF and I also have other commitments through my online platforms and to my public speaking and so forth as well so in a nutshell that's who adrian o'brien is i love it mate and that's why i frame that question as who you are not what you are or what do you do because yeah i'm a bit like you i think that we are beyond titles um and yeah i loved how you responded to that question where did diving into your core come from yeah, I, I think that I was. I, I remember once I went to a seminar, and it was actually with, believe it or not, I don't think he's as popular now. But I remember it was Martin Rooney. I think it was training for Warriors. I don't know if you're aware of his stuff, but that's gone back a long time ago. But Martin Rooney is an unbelievable motivator, high level coach in his own right. Um, would have coached through the martial arts, mixed martial arts in America, but. One of the very first jobs or tasks we were given on the course over the weekend. Now, I thought I was going to learn more about 
activation methods or I was going to learn new exercises or new sets and reps. But one of the very first things we had to do was we had a sticker with our name on our chest hmm. and everyone had 30 seconds to say who they were. And I remember like everything, if I go to any of these seminars or these events, I want to learn. So I was sitting right up at the very front. So he picked me and he looked down at my name badge and he said, stand up. And I stood up and he said, right, you've 30 seconds to explain to the group who you are. So I started with, oh, my name is Adrian O'Brien. He said, whoa, 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 stop now. He said, I don't want to know your name. So I said, all right. So I said, I'm a performance coach. Whoa, 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 whoa. He said, I don't want to know your job description. I don't want to know your name. I don't want to know your wife's name, your kids' names, your parents' names. I don't know. I want to know the town you're from. I want to know about you. And I was just rooted to the ground. I, it was like this light bulb, eureka moment in my own head. I had absolutely no deep understanding of who I was beyond any label or any tag that I had been given. And I was, it just sent me on a quest and on a journey to come to terms with who I was as a person, because as coaches fundamentally we're giving mm-hmm. and we're constantly exchanging energy with other people and you cannot give on a deep level until you know what you're giving and who you are and even though subconsciously i always would have been values driven in my coaching process i would have defined my coaching process at that point i would have known my coaching philosophy very deeply at that coach at that point i would have known my life philosophy and my life values but i had never put it together into a paragraph or a flow of sentences so that if anyone ever asked me, who are you? I could just rattle it off. So it evolved. It took time and I sat down and every single day I would review it and I'd write a couple of sentences and I removed some things and I added some things and that's what I settled with. And now I still, I still play with it slightly, but mm. that to me is my, it's my North star that guides me on every decision I make on a daily basis. And even more importantly, that's who I am as a father. That's who I am as a coach. That's who I am as a, as a husband. That's who I am as a son. That's who I am as a business person. I'm the same person when I'm in the dressing room with the players as I am when I'm at home on a Saturday night with my kids. And when you're that person, you have a level of integrity. Mm-hmm. And integrity is the difference between what you say you do and what you actually do. And I think that in, and I hate using the word industry because I don't think we, we work in a fitness industry. It should be a community. We should be sharing and we should be cooperating as opposed to competing and challenging all the time. But it gives you integrity. And that's something that is very badly missing and lacking in our community as fitness professionals. Because, and not so much so in our community, even through real movement and so forth, I mean the greater community. I mean the, you know, the, the snake oil salesmen. I mean people stepping on top of people just to get further in their own careers. You know, I've had so many coaches. Like I spoke about this yesterday. The best coach I ever had was when I was about 15, I had a coach who technically was a really poor coach, but he cared about us. I remember he would 
he'd put four or five of us into a car after training sessions and go into matches and he'd buy us ice cream on the way home and like he he was just such a nice person and then the further I got in sport and I remember one time I got trials for the Irish under 19 rugby team and I was meeting these top level elite coaches and the further I went with those coaches the, the more the connection got lost and yeah they were technically really good coaches but there was no connection to them and I firmly believe that a connection to the athlete you're training or a connection to the person you are, you are married to at home or a connection to your kids is what we're all striving for. And I was always so conscious that I didn't want to become a successful coach, but walk in the door of my own home and lack connection to the people that I love most or the people that I want to be connected to most, because that ultimately would be failure, in my opinion, because there would be a massive void in my life. So... I just think that how did I get there to, to get to this point? It was just my own personal struggle, my own personal journey, lots of reading, lots of reflection, um, lots of not distancing myself from my own decisions, which is really important as well. And we, we all tend to do that. We, we could distance ourselves from our decisions. So therefore, what we can do is we can surround ourselves with people who will bias the decisions that we made so that we can confirm what we've done and that leads us on a track to, in the short term, thinking we're wrong, but in the long term, quite a destructive path. So I would never distance myself from decisions. I would always spend time with people who may, dis may disagree with me or keep me in line or keep me in check or, you know, just give me a reality check. Because when you do that, it's, it's a very powerful place to be in because you, it doesn't allow you to get ahead of yourself. And that's, that's really important. So um yeah it's kind of a roundabout answer for that there, there was no one process i went through it's a continual evolving continuous process i anytime i introduce myself to a team or to a group that's what i introduce myself with because that's who i am anytime i start a presentation with people who i haven't done that with before they'll know exactly who i am as a person and it just makes my life an awful lot easier because now i have a very defined set of values and a very defined sense of self and I can base every decision and every action around that that expression of myself love it mate and I, I really love what you said about not being distant from your decisions yeah that's obviously been popularized now by Jocko Willink with extreme ownership but turns out that's a that's a ancient stoic philosophy to you know be in control of 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 those decisions um I've just recently done a series of personal coaching and sort of business coaching. And it was really fascinating to hear back these sort of psychological concepts that you, that you continually read and accumulate. And, and I hear you speak and, and you're someone that likes to uh, get a diverse array of educations. Um, how cool is it to see concepts that you intuitively find come up in the mainstream and, and hear them back to you and go, ah, oh, I was doing the doing the right thing, maybe you know you don't want to say right thing, but this is this is resonating yeah. with someone else now, and it, and it's being popularized by someone else. Is you know I find it really really cool. How yeah, about yourself? Yeah, it's it's and the thing about it is, I I, I love. All right, this is my thoughts on formal education. I think that f number one, formal education in many ways will teach you what they or that institution want you to know. Okay, mm. so. 
if you go to an institution, there'll be a syllabus or a set of modules based on what they want you to know, okay? So then you leave that with a certain skill set, but you leave it with the same skill set that the other 60 or 80 or 120 people have been exposed to as well. So therefore you have a set of problems and all these graduates attack the set of problems with the same skill set because that's all they know. So therefore, I have always, I've always critically thought about things. I've always been able to step back and attack things from other angles because in, in our community, everything has to be evidence-based. And I get that, right? I get that. We have to have a sound principle structure in which we base our decisions on, right? But you can get to the point where if you're waiting for everything to be evidence-based, it can actually stifle your own progress as a coach because let's call it spade a spade. There's never been a research study done on Ryan O'Connor that will give us a very 100% scientifically um, significant result on whether a program will work or not. Mm. So all we're really doing is we're, when we write a program, we're in a state of cognitive dissonance where we are over and back in our own minds. Is this going to work? Is this not going to work? Will this work? Will this not work? And you're grappling. But then when you get, this is the science of coaching. But then the art of coaching is where you hand that program to Ryan O'Connor. And where it's the interaction of the handing the program to the client or the athlete. That's going to define whether the program works or not, in my experience, far more than whatever science backs it up. Like I have seen some pretty poor programs get really good results. And I have seen some unbelievably well thought out programs get average results. And the bottom line, it all comes down to how the recipient applies themselves to the, to the actual program more than the program design itself. So formal education can bring us so far, but if you can expose yourself to different ways of thinking, and most of the, I won't say most of these, a lot of these things aren't in research. They're there through millennia. You know, an awful lot of these things have been passed up from generation to generation to generation to generation. And there, may, there might not be 10 double-blind studies done, but we intuitively know because using your intuition is a really important skill. And if you can get to the point where you're marrying what we learn in formal education with what you're willing to open your mind to outside of that, then you can attack a set of problems with an element of disruptive thinking that an awful lot of other coaches don't have because you can now see the problem from a different angle or you can now see the problem from, from a different view. So therefore, it allows you just to offer some solutions to that problem that are outside of the norm based around what everyone else does. And even with my own practice, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And it's like... It's like this. I remember one time, um, two a, a really good physiotherapist. Um, he's actually uh, Paul McCarroll, phenomenally intelligent guy here in Ireland. But um, he he done physiotherapy, done his undergrad in physiotherapy. He's now gone back to become. He studied medicine and he's now doing um, surgery. He's gone into med, the, the medical route. And I remember Paul one time. Um, I forget what it was now, but I asked him a question, and he said to me what was it again? I think it was, I used to bring him up to my gym to do clinics and sorry, this is how the story goes. 
I used to bring him up to the gym to do clinics and one of the clients asked him a question and it was low back pain. So he said, my, my lower back is stiff all the time. And uh, Paul said, yeah. Yeah, and he said, well, I was talking to a fellow there who's a sports massage and he told me that my pelvis is in an anterior tilt and my hamstrings are on stretch and my lower back is flaring up all the time. And he said, he told me that that's what it was. And he told me that I have to do these exercises. And I remember Paul standing back and he kind of looked at him and he said, yeah, he said, it could be, yeah, but it could be this and it could be this and it could be this and it could be this. And Paul said, I wouldn't necessarily say it is what, what you were told. And I remember that client walked out of the gym. And the ironic thing is he walked out of the gym thinking that Paul didn't actually know what he was talking about. And he actually still to this day thinks that the first answer he got off the guy who had limited experience was the right answer because he gave him a definite answer. But Paul had far more experience and a vast array of knowledge to refer back to. And he couldn't give him a definite answer because he obviously wasn't black or white. So Paul actually came out in that scenario looking like he was the person who didn't have all the answers, but he actually did have all the answers. But the person who had a very reductionist approach to the whole scenario, who was actually very limited in his skill set, looked like he was the person who knew everything, if that makes sense. Mm. One of my favorite words, uh, especially through doing this podcast, is nuance. And that's why I love podcasting, because you get the opportunity to explore an idea and, and come up with those alternatives to yourself. And we're seeing it a lot with, and you brought up snake oil salesmen, but we're seeing it a lot with COVID. We saw it a lot with, um, with uh, climate change. We see it a lot with nutrition. Um, a little bit of, of knowledge, like you say, can be dangerous. And even myself, um, I was saying to you off air, I'm quite fascinated by the autonomic nervous system. And I, and I went on a course just before COVID that was very introductory around light therapy. And it resonated a lot with me in, in terms of the concepts, but, I was very mindful that this is introductory. I know, I know nothing right now. And if I'm to go be cavalier with this, with this protocol, I'm going to come up with a whole bunch of questions all of a sudden. So I'm going to wait until the uh, second advanced course to you know, have a devil with that. But um, how important, uh, that's where I think the role of going through something scientific as a formal education, the, key to it is learning to learn and learn, learning to appreciate that there's always more questions like what, what sort of value do you see in from from a scientific model or, or proving to yourself on, on the flip side of intuition yeah like it is you have to as i say you have to have your practice has to be grounded in some form of science there's no doubt about that you know otherwise it just becomes you're pulling anything from anywhere and there's, there's nothing to, there's no evidence at all behind what you do. So, you know, I think it is very important that you have a very principle, like, like mm. look at the principles of training. You know what I mean? The principles don't change. Yeah. You know, the principles don't change. And like, when I look at a program, I, I can, I can look at a program and straight away I can see, right. Okay. What principles here is this program following? You know, what's the, you know, are, is there overload here? Is there, you know what I mean? Specificity here. And what about the principles out? They have to be fundamentally, the and they get lost. This mm. is the other side of things. I see programs where I'm looking at it and I can think, especially like this six-week protocol or this eight-week protocol. <laughs> you're thinking, right, like, you know, where did this start and where does this finish? 
you know, you just see this, this block of German volume training. And I'd often think to myself, okay, where is this person going after this? And where was this person before this? You know, and I think that that happens an awful lot of people who will go on T Nation or they will go on whatever website, they'll download German volume training, number one, without having a base to tolerate it in the first place. But mm. like when you come out the other end of it, where exactly is it going? Like, what do you do? Go from German volume training to, you know, wheelers eight by eight to, you know, five, four, three, two, one to, you know, like, you know, where is Russian where is squat program? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so you like, you can't just keep bouncing from place to place. So there has to be fundamentally an important underpinning of what you do. And I, I do like, like I'm finishing my master's at the moment. Um, I do like having a, um, a science base, but I do think as coaches, and I know it uh, might sound like I'm contradicting myself because I'm finishing my master's and I might do a PhD. I, I don't know. I'll see what way the, I, I'll never say never. I might want to do it, but I do think that we're over-sciencing it. Mm. I do think that, you know, we are losing the softer skills of, of intuition and emotional awareness and connection and being able to read personalities. And I think that that's fundamentally, I, I know unbelievably intelligent sports science, mm-hmm. unbelievably intelligent, but they can't connect with people. And because of that, they're now either not in the industry slash community or they're working for very small money because they don't have the ability to communicate. I think it was Charles Pollock said that was it quite coaches will have hungry children. And it's, it's, it's true. Like, you know what I mean? And you, so you have to be able to articulate and communicate. And the more I see the top level coaches, I see, yes, they have that scientific background that underpin their training, but man, are they unbelievably good communicators and they are so well dialed in with the softer skills as well that they have the full package. And I think that, again, as, and I know I'm going back to coaches here again, but as coaches, coaches have to wear so many different hats. And this is why going back to the fundamental, you know, a line or paragraph that I opened with, like honesty is so important and honesty is a value of mine. And if like, I learned very early, very early on in my career that I'm not going to know everything about everything and over diversifying isn't exactly the worst or the, the best thing you can do as a coach either, because yes, it's important to have a big base of knowledge, hundred percent, but you're not going to get it in a year. And I think that coaches come out of university and they're nutritionists, they're physiotherapists, they're performance coaches, and now they're life coaches. Yeah, mm. and psychologists and psychiatrists you know and the thing about it is i've had people come to me and they've said um for example i i had a guy one time who came to me and he said um, i want to learn olympic lifting and i said yeah i can coach olympic lifting and he said no but i want to compete at olympic lifting and he said I, I really want to give it my all and i said right then go to an olympic lifting gym go to a gym that eats sleeps and breeds olympic lifting where you're going to be exposed to top level Olympic lifters and you're going to be in that environment where you're going to be pushed by the best of the best and you will progress faster. Now I could have taught him Olympic lifting and I can guarantee you 90% of coaches would have just said, yeah, write the check. I'll take your money and I'll draw you a program. That wasn't what it was about for me. It was about the honesty to him and say, come here. Yeah, I can teach it, but you will progress faster if you go somewhere else. Hmm. Now, that can be a very confronting thing to do as a business person and as a coach, 
because first of all, there's a monetary fallout from it. And secondly, you're thinking, right, am I losing credibility here now because I'm giving a client to someone else? Mm-hmm. You know, is he going to leave here thinking he doesn't know what he's talking about? But then when you get past that, and you, this is about bringing your, your life philosophy to life, and if you get to the deeper levels of, no, it's about being honest. And I have met the same person numerous times. And to this day, he has thanked me. And he's a really good Olympic lifter. And he has thanked me time and time again for pushing him down that path. And to me, that's coaching. I, as a coach, I probably had as much an impact on him without him ever lifting a barbell with me by directing him and a coach is somewhere who directs you somewhere that you couldn't go without him Hmm. that makes sense beautiful the only thing i can sort of relate that to is in in our business is is optometrists you know people always come in saying oh but what about laser you know you know you guys must hate that and i think no i've had it myself it's it's great if if you're suitable do it great and they kind of look at you like what what's going on but that's that's not your industry of course it's not but that's that's what you want, isn't it? <laughs> and I can tell you the, be- yeah. the benefits of doing this. And then they go, oh, but you hear about this? I was like, no, no, it's, it's great. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, and if that's going to improve your life, go for it. You know, it, it's, it's awesome. Um, but yeah, you, you brought up the concept of, of principles. And again, this comes to sort of my diverse findings. And I heard Rowan saying about every, every book's a coaching book. You know, and I suppose every book's a life book. You know, they say that about f- fiction. You know, it's a it's a life life lesson. It's not a not a made up story. And with principles, that's something that Ray Dalio is big on: is, is applying the first principles of investing in life and and that intuition, I guess, and then going ahead and making that that decision. And like you say, you can have a wider range of programming, but really, what's the principle? And it's the same um, with optometry. It's like what's what's the principle behind someone's thoughts behind the way that their overall health works and how that shows up in the eyes. What's the principles there? Um, where does that show up elsewhere in your life? Like I said, you know, every book's a coaching book and every book's a life book. You know, where else does that real principled approach show up in your life? Yeah, I, I, it's everywhere, really. It, it, it underpin like, again, what I opened with, and I actually had a chat with someone yesterday and he said, you know, what are your goals for, this time next year and I'm kind of a kind of a person where I firmly believe that the universe will always bring you to what you want to achieve anyway I really do mm-hmm. believe that I think that look is where opportunity meets preparation and mm-hmm. I think that if you're always prepared like it was like the real movement um last weekend one of the speakers there was a mix-up at the times and um you know, I think Lucas just put it up in the background. Does anyone want to present? And um, I was keeping the conversation going with, um, forget who I had on at the time, but a guy, Zach Woodward, that I had never touched paths with. And he just put his hand up and he said, yeah, I'll go for it. I'll present. And he came in and he just spoke about isometrics. He was phenomenal. Hmm. He was phenomenal. I just, like young guy, just spoke with so much confidence, off the cuff, no PowerPoint, nothing. And he just spoke and the conversation flowed. And I just thought to myself, well, there you go. He was prepared. The opportunity arose. And he put himself in front of a global audience because he was, and that's not, that wasn't lucky because it was put out to a lot of people to jump on, but they weren't prepared. Mm. 
when the opportunity arrived. So when people ask me, you know, what are your plans for? I, I don't really, I just go with the flow. Um, I, I have my, my, like my principles, my daily principles are, you know, my non-negotiables. I train daily, every single day. Um, I, it comes back to what I said at the while ago. I, at the very start, I value my health. Um, I value my longevity. I value my existence and I value my body. And every decision is a values decision ever anyway. You know, but from the food you eat to the people you hold conversations with to the time you spend in front of the TV to the time you spend in nature. These are all values decisions. You either value it or you don't. And then decisions become very easy. I value education. I value learning. That's why I put time into these things. I value my family. So I put time into these things. So I think that your principles, your, your values underpin your principles. Um, so I, I value training. So I train every day. So it becomes a principle of my life. I, I value my family. So I play with my family every day. So it becomes a principle of my life. You know, so I, I think that I've, I've seen so many people write goals and a goal without a defined set of values to underpin those goals will just crumble apart. I always, and again, it's back to the highest form of your identity, yourself, who you are, then you work down. Mm. And once you work down, then you can have your strategies, then you work down, have your action plans, then you work down and you have your daily activities. But if you reverse that, if, and this is what the fitness industry does all the time, you know, you will get a program, 100%. You will get a nutrition program, 100%. You will get, like, it's not a lack of knowledge. We have so much knowledge. There is tons of knowledge out there. So people, abundance of programs, abundance of nutrition plans, abundance of opportunities to exercise. And people do that. But after four to five weeks, they fall off those plans. Why? Because they've started from the bottom up. They've started with their strategies and their action plans, but they've given no time to self or their identity or who they are. But the real change starts from a top-down approach. And the stronger you are up there, then everything just becomes easier and things will always fall into place. And um, I, I, I had a job opportunity last year with, a, with another team, a job that I would have jumped at a couple of years ago, but I had given my word with the, with the team I'm with for three years. So it was a no-brainer. Mm. Like it was absolutely no way it didn't even come into my mind about taking that and you know i had conversations with people i didn't tell too many people about it but they said you know will that opportunity come again of course it'll come again absolutely that's the way the world works if you're prepared and if you're have if you have a good level of of preparation in your life and you're still living your life through those simple principles and progressing and giving to others it'll always come back to you. There's, it, it's just the way the, the law of the universe. Great. Um, you, you said it there, why? Um, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a couple of con concepts around there, out there about, you know, asking why three times or even just as simple as Simon Sinek, start with why. And that's where, like you say, having those core values is, well, why am I doing this? Do these align? You've got to, like you say, you've got a starting place, you've got a foundation to go from. And, it is really fascinating how, you know, and I suppose that can be a distraction with working or with coaching or, or as a team, you know, and Steve Hansen said it on the weekend, you know, if your outcome's focused, then then you lose out and, and you come unstuck. 
And but when you're coming from that that base, that core principle, that real connectedness to you, and if it's a team to to the team and, and why you're doing it, then amazing things happen. And that's where I guess where flow happens, like you're saying, with you know being prepared and having that opportunity. It means that you can just fall into it, and, and things fall into you when they when when they supposed to and align you know all those types of words that that's just what i think we should be aiming for and and that's kind of what the podcast is about is reframing that success mindset of being in that really beautiful state and place and um, setting Mm. and with people that matter it yeah it's a that's what i think success probably looks like and it's it's amazing that we don't teach our kids this like Mm. you can talk about education and we spoke about formal education you can go through education from you know here in ireland you start school at five nowadays a tremendous amount of of teenagers will go to third level education Hmm. and now really to get a lot of jobs you need at least a a master's level of education so you may have went from the age of five to the age of 25 so you could have 25 years in education Hmm. and 25 years later you could come out of that still not knowing who you are as a person. And we see so many of these kids in secondary schools and in colleges where drug use is, you know, an epidemic proportions. Mm. We have gambling, we have addictions, we have alcohol addictions. Like the drug boom in Ireland is nothing but frightening. Well, before this current COVID experience, it had gone to levels that are frightening. I mean, frightening. So if we prepare a child to the point where at 20 years of age, they still are not secure and strong and confident enough in themselves to say no, Hmm. no, no, thank you, that they still feel the pressure from their peers, then we're failing as a society. It becomes more than just a parenting thing because it's a societal thing. Because we're glorifying the wrong things. We have a society where we like we, we, we glorify the fast cars, we glorify the rap music, we glorify the things that really don't matter, you know, everything that has value. You know, you turn on you turn on television and it's reality television, it's these, you know, Love Island and all these things. There's no substance. There's no substance. There's no substance to any of that. Mm. And the truth of it is that the real value in life and the real value on things are things that you can't buy. Mm-hmm. Can't buy a PhD. Can't buy love. Can't buy trust. Mm. Can't buy health. You can't buy a, a strong marriage or a strong connection. Can't buy an Olympic medal. Can't buy a World Cup medal. Now, like these things you can't purchase, but the path of least resistance is the path that most people go down and they get stuck in this trap of, yeah, I'll work my nine to five and my enjoyment is cocaine on a Saturday night. <laughs> That's my enjoyment because it's the easy route. And I think that somewhere along the line, we, we, have, we have failed massively. Mm. And a lot of what I do is... Because it only can start with you. You know, it can only start with you. And then it can only start with the people you're closest to. And then you can expand from there. Very much like what I said about, 
you know, if your goal is weight loss or fat loss, then it must start with you. And then you have an identity and you move down from there. Mm. But I think that we, we really have to have a concerted effort to try to work on and be confident enough to speak about how we feel, who we are as people, what our values are as people, what direction we want society to move in. Because so many people are afraid to speak like that. So mm. many people are, like they say, that the hardest person to be when you grow up is yourself. <laughs> and it's the highest form of self-actualization is to be in a position where you actually really don't care about what other people think, where you're, you're so willing to stand out from the crowd and speak openly. That's a very pure place, place to speak from. Mm. And I remember going back a number of years ago, finishing a season with a team, and I, I had so many regrets and I was thinking, why did I not do this? And why did I hold back? And from that day forward, became part of what it's actually written there in my office. But don't hold back. Mm. Don't hold back. So in any conversation or any interview or podcast I give, I speak how I feel. And I speak about who I am. And I think mm. that it just gives clarity. And it was in my script that I opened with. For those who seek, I can be an inspiration. For those who don't, it doesn't bother me. I don't really care, you know. Beautiful, mate. Um, yeah, that that sort of brought up a couple of things that I, I try and interact in, in this small opportunities that I have as an opportunist. I had an uh, op- uh, optometrist. <laughs> Yesterday I had, and you said rapping. <laughs> it's quite interesting. Um, a young young boy, uh, Māori boy, come in and... Um, the guidance counselor from his school had brought him in, which was, you know, again, one of those hopefully powerful moments for this young man that someone really did care for him and, you know, came in and paid for the appointment out of his pocket um, for this young boy. And, you know, then, then again was an opportunity to pass on some influence to this boy. And Yusef um, Atuyaso, who's, who's part of Real Movement, and I've had on a couple of times, and, and the first time I interviewed him, he told me about, an interaction he had when he went to UC Berkeley in the States and, and he went there to play water polo and, you know, he was, he's, he's a smart lad as well and, and, and studied sort of sociology and stuff. And he met with his coach and expecting, you know, what can you offer the team or what can you bring to the team and what do we hope to, you know, do with it, you know, expecting something generic about water polo or school. The man asked him, what are you passionate about? And that question lights up people and it often makes them uncomfortable and also can make if it's a a younger child and their parents there the parent uncomfortable especially when the child looks to the parent for some type of uh, clarification or anything like that but that goes to what you expressed at the start there the core of who that person is and then on the flip side to that uh, and it goes along with the ownership stuff whenever somebody comes in and I can often smell smoke on them. They, they're not usually one to admit it that they're a smoker. Some people do. Instead of, you know, flashing up the facts about macular degeneration and everything else, which they know, um, like you said, there's no shortage of knowledge out there. Simply asking them, why do you smoke? They, yeah, go deep. And usually it's, I started when I was a teenager because I thought it was cool. Or like you said, I couldn't say no at the time. And, and I, I think that unravels a big can of worms because it's, you know, if I'm 
that person that I was at 20 years old and I couldn't say no? What else in my life do I not say no to? What else in my life have I not developed? What else in my life have I not moved forward forward with? And, and I love that word, that growth mindset too. Like, yeah, drugs and, and suicide statistics are, are scary and, and horrific. But um, yeah, that, that little circle of influence, that responsibility to yourself and, and the people you interact with can make a powerful difference. And, and it takes courage, like you say, the courage of that season wasn't there and to realize that you didn't have that courage to be authentic and be you to then, you know, learn something. As you said in your little core values, learn from failure, you know. How important is that to, to not be scared to fail because you're going to learn a shitload, you know. It's not always, you know, the aim is to win, but you do get a lesson out of that, eh? Yeah, yeah. And then, like, not everyone is ready for it, and I get that, and it's i've made so many mistakes in my own life you know and it's about learning from those mistakes and i'm 40 years of age this year and it's i'm still figuring it out like you know so i think that it, it's it's hard for people in this world because there's so many there's so many outside external forces that are pulling for our attention and or i'll give you an example you know my my second son i have three sons so my second lad, we were sitting down watching the Champions League final, okay, about two years ago. So I forget who was playing. I think it was like Liverpool and was it Barcelona. I forget. No, I don't watch a whole pile of um, don't watch a whole pile of sport. If I'm to be honest, which is <laughs> which is a bit um, which is a bit ironic, seeing as I make my living from sport. But anyway, um, yeah. So we were watching the match, and the, the ads came on at halftime. You know, so the first ad was Paddy Power. Okay, so I don't know if you've got heard of Petty Power in New Zealand, but it's it's a gambling, it's, right. it's like um, yeah, it's a gambling um, uh, gambling company. The second ad was Budweiser. Mm-hmm. Third ad was McDonald's. The fourth ad was Permanent TSB, which is a bank, and the fifth ad was Betfair Three Six Five, which is another gambling um, company. So these were the five ads that came on. So I just paused the television and I said. Um, I said, you notice anything about those five ads? And he said to me, he said, uh, yeah, he said, the Petty Power ad was funny. And it was funny. There was an element of comedy in the ad. And I said, yeah. I said, but you see anything else apart from that? And he said, no. No, he was about maybe, what's he, he was about maybe 13 at the time. And I said to him, I said, in the last two and a half minutes, however long those ads were on, you were told to gamble, to eat crap food, to drink alcohol, when you have no money, borrow it and gamble again. And that wasn't done by accident. Mm. Like, I don't have a, a very accurate figure on this, but I could give you an estimate that possibly at least 50% of the males in the country between the ages of 16 and 36 and 40 would watch the Champions League final. So that collection of advertisements were directly directly aimed at that population and demographic so and at half time in a match where people are emotionally invested in the match so mm. when someone is emotionally invested in a game we manipulate those emotions and that thought process and then their actions to gamble to drink to borrow and to gamble and to eat crap food as well and to me that's disgusting to me, that's the highest form of manipulation. But awareness is the precursor to change. And if you don't have awareness to these things, 
you'll you'll never see them. And I just think that a lot of people live with their eyes wide shut and they don't see that to start with. And some people don't want to see it. They're quite happy. They live for the weekend and they work their nine to fives. And, you know, that's, I remember going to a Man United match with, with one of my kids one time and we went to Manchester to watch a match. And I just couldn't believe how grown men in yeah. their 40s and their 50s would chant, chant so aggressively and passionately like there was this there was these two men in front of us their two kids were just sitting down watching the match they were just sitting down they were the same age as my own son at the time he was about possibly i think even yeah about 12 or 13 the kids were sitting down watching the match the two fathers were on their feet chanting across the opposition supporters you know and i was thinking yeah like Look, I don't want to judge, and I'm not being judgmental or anything like that. But I was thinking, like, you know, is this really the is this really the the purpose of sport? Is this mm. really what sport is designed? You know, is this just the ugly side of it, or is it just the way I'm seeing it? Because people around me weren't taking much notice. Maybe it was just the lens that I looked through things. Mm. Mate, you, you brought up community, and I, I know that I don't know whether it's my Irish heritage or. Catholic upbringing or, or what, but with with the G- GAA stuff, you, you hear the word parish often come up, um, <laughs> and, and like you know, for for a while there that, that probably triggered me, but now it, it's nostalgic. It, it, it's great, and to ha- have talked with with a, an Irish guy and played rugby with him over in here, and just see him gaze up to the left when he talks about Gaelic football, um, it's something that. Like, uh, and, I, and I love it that it's a team sport, but when you're running with the ball, you're soloing. Like, <laughs> it's, it's romantic, yeah. eh? Um, how much is the, the parish idea behind Gaelic sports? Like, what, you know, that's, that's community right there. Like, it must yeah. be powerful. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's the heart and soul, <coughs> you know. Um, it's the heart and soul of the GAA. So it's, 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 it's really unique. And it's really hard for someone who's outside or not ever reared in the GAA culture to assimilate and articulate that in their own minds. Because I'll give you an example. Every town in Ireland Hmm. has a GAA team. Now, I don't know how many towns are in Ireland, but there's quite a few. (laughs) So you could have a parish of 100 people, 150 people, 200 people, and they will still put out a team. Now, it might be at a lower level, but they'll put out a team. So essentially that team, and it has, this is quite routinely, could be made up of three families. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you could have three to four families making up that team. And then you have the lineage of the families as well. Now, it's, it's amazing to see it because the GAA field becomes the epicenter of the town. Like the town where I'm from, the, I don't know, we have about maybe 1,200 people in the town. The GAA field is where I spent my summers. It's where my kids spend their summers. People just, kids just go and play in the field. And, you know, they could play in the field for eight, nine hours. They could just, that's where they socialize. That's where so much of the interactions happen in the field. So it is essentially the lifeblood of many parishes, towns and even cities but not so much cities because once 
this you get into the city environment you lose that just due to the size and, and populations you lose that parish feeling mm-hmm. but it runs really deep it's really tribal and then of course it's very competitive because you've 32 counties in ireland and you first start off on the club level is you play the parishes from your county so if you could imagine take take hamilton as being a province as Ham- hamilton is a province is it the, uh, waikato, waikato is the province yeah and then hamilton waikato, is the, sorry yeah waikato yeah. hamilton the, is the city, the city. Yeah, yeah yeah so yeah so if you could take waikato as being the province then in ireland we have counties we have four provinces but those four provinces are com- a combination of 32 counties hmm. so you may have let's just say 120 towns or parishes in a county then you're graded from senior to intermediate to junior but you could be playing your neighbors who are three four five miles over the road mm-hmm. so you could be working with someone today you could be best friends with someone and you could be playing against them on a sunday you could have relations playing against each other because you know you could have a cousin who married a girl in a local parish and now his children are playing for the local parish and now all of a sudden they're playing against. So it's, it, it's, it's very hard to frame it and until you experience it. But yeah, it, it is unique and it is something that, it's something that is very, very rare in sports. Mm. And it's something that we're very proud of because it's so much ingrained in our heritage and our culture and our history as Irish people. Love it. Yeah, I guess um, the Aussies probably relate a little closer. And obviously, AFL went went professional, but you, you hear the same thing about Australian towns in, in the Oval. <laughs> and um, yeah. a lot of the guys in, in, in Newcastle laugh because the deer in Newcastle run around on the Oval at night. But um, I guess you get a bit of that in Ireland too, the, the, old, the old deer or sheep running around the, the Oval. <laughs> We don't get ovals, but we definitely get sheep and deer. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, um, it was interesting you, you said about how the parish theme runs away when, when you get into the city. And, you know, you also get the bank, the, the bars and, and the nightclubs and, and, and the culture. And, and that city close to you, Limerick, has a, has a bad rap for being stab city. Um, and, and it also is that removal of... of your connection with food, with land, with you've brought up nature. Um, it's a it's a tough thing to reconcile. I reckon um, we become so removed when we live in a city, and then it almost feels like I don't know whether it's an embarrassment or something. We then hate on the country and we derogatise the country, and and like especially in New Zealand, there's a heavy urban rural divide. And that's been, I guess, a, a silver lining of COVID is, well, holy cow, where does my food come from? What what does support this country? Um, and looking at the agriculture sector, looking at the way Ireland presents itself as this green, that, you know, you've, you've trademarked the green thing, and, and rightly so. Is there, do you see much of that rural-urban divide happen over there as well? Uh, Maybe maybe a little bit in Dublin because, mm-hmm. you know, Dublin is that bit bigger, but n- not necessarily. 
I don't see it as much myself. Like, first of all, um, so yeah, I'm from, I'm from Limerick. So you would have the city and then you'd have the county, but it's small. Like I'm, I'm 20 kilometers outside of the city. My son goes to school in the city, even though I live in the county. So the barriers in terms of it, the, the divide is broken down because we interact all the time because we're always in and out of the city. Now, I'm sure there are some parts of Ireland where some really rural parts of Ireland, like the west of Ireland and Connemara, and, you know, we have some islands off Ireland as well, and they're still um, habitable and there's still people living in them. So maybe that they would feel it to a bigger degree, but I wouldn't feel it that much. Mm. Um, I wouldn't really feel it that much. I think that we have... I think we missed the trick a small bit when it comes to agriculture. We have, we have, um, we have a, a property tax here in Ireland. So if you own your own home, you have to have a, a tax attached to that home for the privilege of owning your own home. But anyway, um, I feel that there should be an incentive for everyone to grow their own food. Because food is free. We have a perfect climate for growing food here, especially potatoes and, you know what I mean, carrots and onions and, we have a really good opportunity to be able to do that, but yet we don't. Now it gets a little bit popular and it doesn't and it comes in and out, but it's, a, it, it's an art that's being lost. Um, I think that it's something that the government could incentivize if they were to reduce the property taxes and encourage people to grow their own food because that to me would be a fantastic scheme because it, so many from environmental factors to obviously the health of the country to reducing our urban or sorry, our environmental um, footprint and so forth. There's so much we could do with that. And the other side of that is Limerick. And you said like Limerick would have gotten a bad rap, not so much lately, but definitely back in the eighties and the nineties, like still an awful, like a lot of people from the city of in Limerick would still frequent out to the county and, to the country because it's not a big city like mm-hmm. Limerick is you know Limerick is it's it's quite small it's it's it, the city center of Limerick is quite small so it's, it's not that big like even Cork isn't that big Dublin is the only city that you could realistically say okay like Dublin is a big city you know like from my experience in New Zealand I've been to Tiamutu like mm-hmm. Tiamutu would just be a town in New Zealand wouldn't it yes yeah like Tiamutu would be a big town in Ireland you know, like, like there was a, there was, it would be a big town in Ireland, whereas I'm from a town, or what would be regarded as a town, but it wouldn't be a fraction of the size of Timuru. So we, um, and we have a lot of commonalities between New Zealand and Ireland as well, in the sense that our populations are quite similar, our, our reliance on agriculture and is quite similar, farming methods are, are quite similar. So there's a lot, there, there, is, a, there is a commonality there. Um, I suppose the major difference is that as being part of Europe, we probably would have more of an influx of travel and stuff like that. Um, whereas I could be wrong in saying this, but New Zealanders tend to travel out. Would that be right? Yeah. Yeah. And it probably comes from the fact that many of those people that established New Zealand were, were from Ireland and Scotland and Wales. I had a, had a David Griffiths the other day. <laughs> and um, I said to him, mate, your name's as Welsh as my name's Irish. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I definitely think that New Zealand harks back to that heritage um and it was interesting you're talking about uh the labels and, and you know don't don't say who you're from and where your parents are from and, and all that sort of stuff it's it's fascinating when you said that like 
Maori culture has the concept of your whakapapa, and that's very much your tribe, your parents, your teachers, your rivers, your mountains, and, and things like that. And as, you know, fourth generation New Zealanders, to then know where the heck that Irish heritage comes from is, is quite quite a, a back step. But then at the same time, I think it's a, a real balancing and it's, it's nuance. It's like, this is where I am and this is this is who I represent. But at the same time, I'm my own person. And I think as well, those people left, um, you know, working on a farm, like you say, for an estate um, and their parents passed away. So they had to, you know, find another way. They traveled halfway around the world, shipwrecked here in New Zealand, and, and, and now I'm here four generations later. It's kind of like, that's a big sacrifice those people made, and, and they did it for the, the future of their family name and things like that. And, and I guess that's got to be your drive, but definitely who you are and the path that you create for the future and those around you is, is again, what you're saying about the core. Um, and, yeah, you know, our similarities, and like we're saying, small small worlds, you know, your brother-in-law from Tiamudu, it's crack up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, like, it just goes to show that even your own story there, we came from tough stuff. Yeah. You know, we, like, we have came from tough stuff, our, you know, ancestors, our grandparents, our great-grandparents. Like, my grandfather cycled to Kilmallock at the age of 14. Mm. He cycled to Kilmallock at the age of 14. He learned his trade as a blacksmith in the town. He met my grandmother, who had been orphaned, but who was essentially being cared for by two men, two bachelors, who she was cooking for, but they were caring for her. They met. They had like 12, 13 children. They, my grandfather worked until he was like literally in his 70s worked as a blacksmith i remember he acquired some land i remember fencing with my grandfather when i was 14 or 15 and i was just in awe of his natural strength and his mm. hands like he would he would he was he was a blacksmith so he had his own contractions that he'd make up himself so he had this crowbar that he would hold horizontally to wedge barbed wire so he would hold that in his left hand and he would beat the paling post with his right hand and my job as a 14 or 15 year old was just to hold the post. And he was, he was an old man at this stage, you know, and he like my grandmother, they, they kept their own animals. Like my grandmother would pluck chickens. She would, you know, make her own jams and they used everything. They were mm. resourceful. They were adaptable and they were just came from tough stuff. And I remember I'd call up to my grandfather and we'd sit down and the television wouldn't be on. And we'd just look into the fire. Hmm. And there'd be no conversation. None. But the fire would be lighting. And we would be just in a trance. But number one, and what I realized now was, that was meditation. <laughs> like, it didn't need apps or headspace or a 12-week wellness course. or Like, they didn't need that, you see. Because number one, survival was the most important thing in their lives. Number two, they had a tremendous amount of responsibility. And number three, they had to have their downtime. And like he would sit down and then we were so comfortable in silence. Mm. There might be no conversation for two to three minutes. 
And it hadn't, there wasn't a case of turning the television on or turning the radio on or, you know, scroll through social media. There was just silence. And then the whole conversation relayed around the fire. It would be go out and get some blocks or get a bit of timber or get some coal and you'd poke up the fire. And there was something very primal about a fire. And if you look at our evolution as humans, you know, fire is how we started to cook food and how our brains evolved and how we hunted and how we kept animals away from us so we weren't eaten and so forth. So there's, there's so much that we subconsciously connect with with fire without us knowing that there's some part of the brain or there's something there that will draw us to fire because it's such a part of our evolutionary past. And the, the big overriding message here is I feel that we need to get back to that. Mm. I feel that in order for us as a people to step forward, we nearly need to step backwards because mm. we've lost so much of what got us to this point. As you said yourself, like your heritage, like we are now in a case where we're like, we're locked up in our homes. We won't get into whether it's right, wrong or indifferent. That's probably a conversation for another day, but we're locked into our homes and we weren't locked into our homes for three to four days. And all I could hear on any media channel, not that I listened to a lot of them, all I could hear was, the mental health problems people had. Hmm. And I thought to myself, we all have food. We all have shelter. We all have people around us who we love. So they're your fundamental human needs here now. You know, fundamental human needs are shelter, love, compassion, and food. But yet that wasn't good enough for us mentally. Mentally, we were gone, were gone so fragile that we couldn't last three to four days without breaking down and to me that is the biggest learning from this whole crisis that mm. we are mentally gone so fragile and i i'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist and i'm not going to look at how that is why that is what the process is but it's there and it is certainly an issue and you know it's in vogue now to speak about mental health and if you speak about mental health and, you know, you'll nearly be shot down and people will see you as not being empathetic or being, you know, uh, speaking above and beyond what you are qualified to speak about. But I do mm. know one thing. I do know one thing. Our fundamental human needs are taken care of. After that, if you have a problem, that means that something deep inside you is terribly unhappy. Mm. Terribly that if you're not comfortable with the people that you love or with just yourself, there is something terribly unhappy. Now, if you want to keep looking outwards and pointing a finger at a government for locking you up or at a virus for not allowing you to go out or for whatever it is, you need to turn that finger back at yourself because it's the bottom horrible. line is, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You can, and this is the thing, people just, they'll watch television, they'll, they'll bury themselves in Netflix. But when that television turns off, who's the first person you meet again? <laughs> yourself. Yourself. You know, you can go on holidays for two weeks. And who's the first person that you meet when you get off your plane? Yourself. You can't get away from yourself. Mm. And this is going back to what I'm saying. People will take their drugs. People will gamble. 
people will do all these things, but when the buzz wears off, still yourself. But people, uh, and I don't want to generalize, but lots of society are gravely unhappy with themselves, mm-hmm. gravely unhappy with themselves. And that to me has been the biggest eye opener or the biggest education throughout this, that we need to step back. Whatever it is that's making our society this fragile and this unhappy and this rooted to reliance on external sources for happiness, then that's where we have to start. That's, that, that is going to kill more people than any virus. Mm. That is going to destroy more lives than any virus. But no one's talking about that. All we're doing is we're throwing challenges up on social media. We're just keeping people entertained, entertained, entertained until this lockdown lifts and people go back to the very same thing again. And we're not looking for a solution to the greater problem. Absolutely. That ties in to two concepts. The one of being close and responsible for your decisions. And two, the fact that you said there, we are made of tough stuff. Like, um, I walk out on this farm here and see concrete posts five k's away and think how the hell did that concrete strainer posts think how the hell did that get there um it wasn't like hung down there by helicopters some bloke carried it over those hills dug a hole stuck it in the ground filled the hole and put the put the feet on it and uh that post still standing there 100 years later like it's fantastic and and i laugh you know i, I have a i have an office job and i, and I think keyboard hands and you know, all this, all this disinfective is driving me wild as, as, as the blister I have gets alcohol in it all the time. But it's like, you know what? That, that is bloody good. And it was exciting. It was funny you saying about your grandfather and, and hammering in barbed wire, like the amount of cuts and, and things. And I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, I'm strong. I can heal. Um, and that's what I've been trying to instill with my daughter. Um, she, she witnessed her, her grandfather fall down. And, and that's what I've been saying to her, you know, he fell down, but he's strong. He can get better. You know, she has a small, small graze. It's like your body is strong. It can get better. You, you, that, that hurt at the time, but you can get better. And, and it's just, again, on, on, on the, the mental health thing. And, and it's the thing I can't get my head around. It's the same with anxiety. I get what it is. I get what you're telling me, but why, why don't we move forward? Why don't we take responsibility for that next step? Why don't we, address what we're so unhappy about or so scared of or, or so running away from what is so wrong with right now and and why can't we enjoy right now why do we have to worry about what happened be depressed or why do we have to be so concerned that the disaster is going to happen that never does um there's that there's that uh, feel good quote about you know so far you've survived 100 percent of the, the bad days <laughs> we made of tough yeah. stuff i love it i love it <laughs> Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, mate. Um, you're you've started the podcasting. I've, I've listened to a few. The Dana Ban and, and and the legend Rowan Smith, and I need to catch up with him, uh, Keegan's brother. Where do people find that? Where do people find you? You said you got an online platform as well. Like obviously, they can see you on Real Movement also. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So again, like it was a it was an opportunity for me to just use the time productively and i decided to get the podcast going it's been brilliant i'm really enjoying it it was something that i was putting on the long finger for quite a while <laughs> um and obviously have a little bit more time and a little bit more time to 
I think, get my head around the technical sides of uploading, and which has been a challenge. And, and that's, the, that's the joy of the process. And um, again, if someone had told me before this COVID pandemic that I would have kind of got my head around podcasting and getting things up and I, I probably wouldn't have believed them. I always, I, I always thought that it was something I would have to pay someone for their services to help me with. But again, this is the power of, this is the power of the information world we're living in. You know, I could, I learned on YouTube how to set up a podcast really, you know, which is phenomenal, like, you know, um, which just goes to show that we have an unbelievable abundance of information. If we just have a small little incentive to create something positive as opposed to just let Netflix kill the time for us. But yeah, so uh, OBF is the name of my business. So you'll, my website is www. Um, sorry, O'BrienFitness.ie. So um, it's O'BrienFitness.ie is my website. My uh, podcast is called OBF Unplugged. So you'll get that on, you know, Stitcher and Apple iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. Um, and in the process of just building, finishing my online platform, it will be called OBF Upgrade, where it will be a support for coaches and support for athletes based around movement, movement, personal development. I have a personal development course that I'm developing called OBF Beyond the Physical. So that will be up on that as well. And I have a coach's corner and yeah, so I, I, that's in process and that's in progress and that's pretty cool. I've been working on that in the background as well. So yeah, well, Brian.fitness and on Instagram as well. I'm quite active actually on Instagram, just Adrian O'Brien on Instagram, Facebook. I do a little bit, not as much. I try to limit it as much as possible. Twitter, not as much. So Instagram would be my main one. Legend. So the thing that I get people to leave, leave us with generally is what's something and, and it's, it goes along with the theme that I keep getting is the truth. What's something that continually shows up for you and, and it never does you any wrong and it always appears in those glorious flow moments. Uh, yeah, just, just honesty, values, everything goes back to that. You know, I've said it so many times. Every decision is a value decision. Every person that I have met who's unbelievably successful and has achieved some level of the competence of whatever field they're in, they're, they're living their life through a certain set of values and aligning their lives through a certain set of values. And it's just picking little nuggets of information from the people who are doing what you want to do. And I'm not saying you mimic them, but you certainly use them as inspiration to help guide you on your path. And that's what I've done. And the commonality is they have a very defined value structure and whether they value being organized, they value whatever it is and they're moving forward towards their ultimate goal. So to me, everything comes back to values, you know, from, from your coaching process to your, to your parenting process, to your marriage process, to your business process, whatever it is. And if you have an alignment between all four or five facets of your life, then as I've said already, you're the same person in all aspects of your life. And then your life gets simpler because you don't have to keep changing your personality or keep, you know, uh, having to go back and it's things you've said to other people. And Einstein said it, you know, that simplicity is the, is the highest form of intelligence. And that's simply how I want to live my life. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Adrian. This was 
so much fun and, and I've really appreciated the, the content that, that you've presented to Real Movement. It's been, been fantastic. And, and yeah, thanks for uh, coming on board and, um, and I'm stoked to uh, introduce the audience to yet another legend. Ryan, thank you very much. It was, uh, it was an honor to be on here. I love your work and uh, keep, keep them pucked out, as you'd say, in Ireland. Yeah, legend. Cheers, mate. <laughs> yeah, to the podcast, values. Uh, it's hugely important. And I suppose that's probably been one of the silver linings to these lockdowns, these social isolations, is it's given us all a chance to sit down, slow down and consider what we value what uh, really makes us happy, healthy, and strong. And as Wim Hof says, the rest is bullshit. <laughs> we heard that with the episode with Mark Clore. But yeah, I think start to finish, Adrian really highlighted a clear, um, a clear base to start from, a clear foundation. And it's something that I've found massively helpful moving forward since university finished um, on Liam McElwee's podcast, Chasing Man, I spoke about finding my why and and writing that down and being fluid with it and, and revisiting it. I do it often. I've got it written in the front of my diary and I check in on it a number of times. And obviously when I get a new diary, I have to retranscribe that into the front of it. And yeah, I think having a true place to come from allows you when you're, you know, the alarm goes off in the morning or um, you know that you want to do something, having that why, having that purpose, having that value and that honesty and uh, responsibility as well means that you get done what should be done, um, which is hugely powerful. Of course, the podcast was brought to you by Waikito, W-A-I-K-E-T-0.P-R-U-V-I-T-N-O-W.com. As for exogenous ketones, on my way home today, I was listening to the Diet Doctor podcast with Dr. Brett Scherer, and he had on Dom Diagostino. It was just a brief one, but boy, did they go into some massive topics to do with exogenous ketones and ketosis. Uh, they didn't have enough time to delve into the weeds, but if you know anything about Dom Diagostino, he's also done a number of podcasts with Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss. He features in the Tim Ferriss book, Tools of Titans one of the uh, helpful hints for this podcast, in fact. Um, yeah, talks about the massive power of ketones and ketosis, how they use exogenous ketones to help assist Navy divers with rebreathers, preventing um, seizures, seizures from ox- oxygen toxicity, um, the massive work that that translate in, translates into concussions, and also, obviously, the founding foundations of the ketogenic diet in epilepsy. And it again, it's parallels with concussions. Tom talks about how the rat model for this sort of brain insult is very, very translative to humans. And yeah, every time they induce things like fasting and ketosis and ketones to those rat models, the survival rate the recovery rate of these rats is absolutely huge it's why i put so much confidence in ketosis and ketones especially when it came to playing rugby especially when i did have that bad concussion i went straight home and had another sachet of ketones and i think that uh, it put me a massive steed to recover from that uh, luke taylor as well said the same uh, he uses the power of exogenous ketones to prove it salts to help him recovering and 
return to work and normality. Um, it can be a long road after a major concussion, but having that tool to lower inflammation, um, improve the ratio of GABA to glutamate in the brain, uh, give the neurons some energy as well. Um, yeah, it's just one of these powerful tools that's easily accessible. Um, so yeah, go to the website waikitzero.pauvitenow.com and check out the exogenous ketone salts as well as the keto reboot. Thank you so much for listening. 144 episodes, super pumped, super proud of that. And thank you all so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Stag Raw.